Welcome to the Biomedical Informatics Roundtable Podcast. I'm Jason Moore, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Marilyn Ritchie. We are coming to you live on tape from the Institute for Biomedical Informatics Idea Factory at Penn Medicine, which is part of the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. The goal of this podcast is to discuss important and fun topics in biomedical informatics in a casual manner. We will use a roundtable discussion format covering hot topics, news, published papers, advice for trainees, conferences, and other items of interest to the biomedical informatics community. We will invite guests to join us in person or by phone and plan to do some interviews with leaders in the field. Our goal is to produce at least one episode per month as our schedules allow. Marilyn and I plan to take turns as host leading the discussions. I am Jason Moore, and it's great to be back to host episode 12, our 13th episode of the Biomedical Informatics Roundtable podcast. We are coming to you live on tape from the metaverse due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Sitting next to me virtually is co-host Marilyn Ritchie, and behind the scenes is our talented sound engineer, Michael Stauffer. Marilyn, what have you been up to since our last recording? Well, hi, Jason. It is great to be back to do another podcast episode. This is the first one of 2021. We just got back from holiday break, and I have to say, I felt like it was spectacular. I know it was a different kind of holiday because of the pandemic. There wasn't a lot of travel. There were no parties, no big gatherings, but I have to say that I loved it. And I actually said to my family, can we please do this from now on? I loved (laughs) it. Staying in pajamas till mid-afternoon, lounging around, reading books. I took naps. Oh my gosh, I can't remember the last time I took so many naps. Uh, So just, it was such a good break. Um, I was having to work a little bit, so I I didn't have, you know, a full 10 days off because I had a grant due, um, but the break itself was just delightful. Um, And so that's the other thing I've been working on kind of most front of mind is this grant that um, I just submitted on Friday. It was a U54 proposal for a data coordinating center that you're very familiar with because you helped with one of the cores. Thank you so much. Uh, it was it was a lot of uh, components to pull together and I learned some, some really good um, NIH assist grant lessons through this process. The system uh, that NIH has um, does not, it's not really built for these um, multi-core grants. I don't think it got really confused by all of the files and file names were too long because the system tacks on all of this information onto the front of a file name. And so if your file name was more than like 30 characters, it was way too long, but it it didn't tell you that until after you submitted. And um you can't have the same file name more than once. So if you have, you know, a, a resources and facilities, you have to rename it in every section. So it was a really good learning experience. But the grant itself, I was really excited about the the team and the the proposal that we put together. It was it was a lot of fun putting it together actually because it it brought to light a lot of the innovative things around data science and informatics that we're doing at Penn. So um, I'm really excited about it. Yeah, I agree. That was a cool grant. And yeah, thank you for uh, taking uh, taking on the lion's share of the work. Um, certainly helped me have a better holiday knowing you were doing all the work. Um, 
but I, I put in one of these big grants at the end of the summer. And um, when we generated the final PDF, it, it had a lot of different components. It had cores, you know, A, B, C, D, E, F. And the order was all wrong. It was like B, F, E, A. And I couldn't figure out, we couldn't figure out how to get the, get the cores to line up in the right order in the PDF. But it turns out that's just, you know, that's the NIH system and that's how it spits it out. And there was, we contact the NIH and there was absolutely nothing we can do about it. So it's got to be weird for the reviewers to read, you know, read these grants with the sections all out of order. I don't understand why the NIH does it that way. I don't know either. So stressful. You do all this work and then it's like these last little glitches that just, uh, but it's in, it is done. So no more grant writing for me for at least a couple months. Um, I'm really excited to say we just had a paper come out in Nature Medicine. Uh, it is work by an MD-PhD student in my lab and it just came out uh, January 11th, I believe is the release date. Um, this was two years of work for his thesis project. It's now out in the world. I'm really excited about it. Um, it's on uh, doing an exome-wide, phenome-wide association study, looking for kind of uh, sets of rare variants associated with a, a number of different disorders. It, it's a really cool paper. I'm excited about it. Yeah, congratulations. Thank you. And uh, I've been working on other papers. You know, I, I know I mentioned in the last few podcasts that you know, we submitted a lot of papers. Well, now they all came back for revision. So we've been revising and I just had a few students graduate. So I'm getting their thesis chapters turned into papers. So it's a lot of editing uh, and revising papers right now. Um, and, and that's been uh, very rewarding to see all these things kind of coming to fruition here at the end. Um, and then the last thing I'd mention, you know, I, when I came to Penn, which shockingly it's been three I just hit three years, which is crazy to me. I, I'm how did three years go by already? Um, I started at the start of 2018, so 2018, 19, 20, like I'm starting year four. Uh, but I started this Center for Translational Bioinformatics. And so we've been putting so much infrastructure together around the Penn Medicine Biobank data and the UK Biobank data, building um, kind of web portals for people to get access to the data for people who aren't comfortable with informatics to get to look at their favorite gene or look at results from FIWAS of these data. And all of these things are finally like done. And we kind of started soft launching them towards the end of 2020 to just get some feedback and you know check for bugs and make sure it all made sense. But now we're ready to really in 2021 start launching these things and doing kind of a big, you know, uh, announcement splash throughout the Penn Medicine community. So I'm really excited. You know, it these things just take so much time and you don't really see a lot of tangible deliverable to show for it until the end. And now we have all of these resources to put out and I'm really excited about it. So uh, this next kind of couple months is going to be a lot of just, the, you know, polishing touches and then putting all of this on the websites and maybe doing a, a um, kind of grand rounds roadshow around to different departments to share and, and tell them about it, which, you know, will be lots of virtual seminars, but, but that's okay. Uh, so that's about it. Jason, what have you been up to? Well, like you, I, I had the best holiday break I've had in many years. I forced myself to take some extra downtime and I'm really glad I did it. 
I usually take a few days off around Christmas and work at least half days through the rest of the break. But this year I took a solid five days off and worked a few hours here and there to chip away at my remaining 2020 to-do list. Um, also, Penn gave us an extended break this year, some extra days, which I took full advantage of. I had no Zoom meetings for nearly two weeks. That was completely awesome. Good for you. And we also had a, a, a good paper come out. Our SumShare methods paper was just published in Nature Communications. I think it came out on the same day your paper came out. Uh, this is a new statistical method we developed in collaboration with Dr. Yong Chen and my, my postdoc, Dr. Ruang Li, led the study. Um, to combine summary stati statistics from the analyses of multiple electronic health records for inference uh, without loss of information. And we applied it to um, the genetic analysis of EHR-derived phenotypes in the eMERGE data. So it was nice to, nice to see that uh, come out. Yeah, it's a great paper. Very exciting. Yeah, thank you. And yours was with electronic rec health record data, too. I don't think you mentioned that. Yep. Um, we ended up having an incredibly productive year last year with numerous grant submissions and published papers. I, I, I you know, it, it just happened to be one of our most productive years ever. And, um, you know, I think it's a testimony to the resolve of my team who persevered through a, a very tough year. Um, so I just want to thank my team for all their hard work during uh, really, really difficult times. Um, you know, I really missed going to Hawaii this year for the annual Pacific Symposium on Biocomputing. Uh, however, uh, the virtual conference seemed to go well. And uh, I know my two workshops were very successful and had good participation, no technical snafus. So hopefully we get to go in person uh, January of next year. And I'm gearing up for budget season here at Penn Medicine. This is the time of year when we produce annual reports and review finances and plans with the dean's office. This process takes about six months to complete from beginning to end. It's pretty rigorous, um, but I think it's needed to make sure that the resources we're all given are used wisely. And we're making a, a big push this year in the Institute to train our community on all the clinical data resources and how to use them. And I'm excited to get this effort off the ground. I, th I think we're in a, a really strong place and we just need to get the community educated, what the resources are, how do you how do you access them, who do you contact, how do you get started, all those things. And finally, I'm uh, getting ready to teach my special topics in biomedical informatics course. Um, uh, this is a uh, literature review course. We, we read papers, the students do brief presentations, and then we have in-depth discussions about the papers. And we have a number of uh, hot topics that we cover during the semester. And um, I lead a first segment on reading and discussing AI literature. We cover all kinds of things like IBM Watson and automated machine learning and natural language processing, et cetera. And we're also doing a new segment this year covering fairness and bias, uh, in addition to precision medicine, which uh, you and uh, Mary Regina Boland lead uh, again this year. Um, but um, you know, more generally, uh, we're working on integrating fairness and bias-related topics into all of our informatics courses. It's such an important topic, and I think if we can successfully weave uh, weave that through all of our courses, the the students will get out a lot of get a lot out of it. Before we get into our discussion topic for the day, we have a few announcements. In case you are listening to us for the first time. You can find us at 
bmipodcast.org. You can send feedback to feedback at bmipodcast.org. You can also leave feedback on Twitter. Our handle is at B-M-I-R podcast and also on Facebook. Be sure to leave us feedback on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Reviews help us improve the podcast, but also help improve our visibility. My name is Adam Wilcox, and I am Chief Analytics Officer at UW Medicine and Professor of Biomedical and Health Informatics at the University of Washington. You are listening to the Biomedical Informatics Roundtable podcast with Jason and Marilyn. Now on to our discussion topic. Each episode, we will pick a hot topic for discussion. Today, our topic is how to become a staff data scientist. Jason will introduce the topic. Thanks, Marilyn. So I've, I've started following several data science pages on Facebook just out of curiosity to see what, what kinds of things they were posting. And, and what I've discovered is that there are a lot of posts about asking the question, how, how do I become a data scientist? So these are clearly young people intrigued by data science and seeking advice about how to get, get started, how to get trained. Um, you know, thinking about what what does a career as a data scientist look like and how do I get there? And what I want to do is just mention um, some of the responses to one of these posts just uh, to give you a flavor of the kinds of things that people are saying about this. But before I do, I, I you know, we've, we've talked about data science several times on the podcast and, and specifically the question of what is data science? And I just published uh, an op-ed that uh, came out yesterday in Extreme Tech um, on the day I learned what data science is. And I think I've told this story before on the podcast, but I'm going to repeat um, a brief summary of it just uh, for those uh, those of you that are listening for the first time. But, you know, I think computer science, statistics, applied mathematics, informatics, you know, these, these are all disciplines, uh, with, with rich history, um, you know, where each discipline is grounded in theory, in scientific method, you know, we generate knowledge and build on that knowledge. And, you know, that's how we do science. And that, and that totally makes sense in academics. But, the point I make in this piece is that as a data scientist, sometimes those things don't matter. Sometimes you just have a problem to solve. And I, uh, the epiphany I had was I went to a computer science workshop uh, about 15 years ago, and this was an AI workshop. And there was a, a gentleman there uh, who, who ran a small investment company. He and some of his buddies invest their own money and that's what they do. Um, and w- they use machine learning and AI and statistics to generate models to make investment decisions based on historic financial data. And so what they do is they, they would line up 50 different algorithms or methods on a Friday, uh, looking at historic data. They would run them over the weekend. They would build models uh, and then test them on Monday's data and then use the results of that to then make investment decisions. And so it was really interesting. And what struck me was the method that was performing the best was the one 
for which there was the least theory available. They were actually using evolutionary computing methods, which computer scientists sometimes poo-poo because there's not a deep, rich foundation of theory backing up evolutionary computing because it's, it's, it's a stochastic method. And he didn't care. He didn't care what the theory said. He didn't care what the traditions were, what the different disciplines would recommend. He didn't care about any of that. All he cared about was which method worked best so that I can make investment decisions. And he was making money on this strategy. And so it sort of clicked for me. It's like, oh, yeah. I mean, and, and this was before we were really talking about data science uh, as a discipline. But, it, but, but the general idea of data science kind of clicked for me. It's like, oh, he has a problem he's trying to solve. And it doesn't matter what the literature says or what the theory says. He just wanted something that worked. So anyway, that's the, that's the nature of my, my op-ed sort of telling that story. Okay, so back to this question of how do I become a data scientist? So there was a, a post on Facebook uh, on one of the data science uh, pages uh, with this question. And it got six, the one I was looking at got 69 replies. So I thought I would just read some of them, including my own reply to this. Uh, so there was somebody who posted a web page with the 15 best online courses for data science. Someone mentioned a free certificate program. Someone said you need to learn Python. Someone said you need to learn databases and SQL. Uh, someone pointed out that there are numerous YouTube channels that you could watch to learn uh, about how to become a data scientist. Someone just said willpower. Uh, someone said try online courses from Udemy and Coursera and, and then ask your employer to pay for a degree. So the idea is you would, you would take some online courses, build up your basic skill set, get a job, and then get advanced training with the help of your employer. Um, somebody said, you know, learn R, Python, SQL, distributed computing, data architecture, statistics with machine learning, project management, communication, intellectual curiosity. Someone said, get a job as an analyst and work your way up. Someone said, learn math first. Someone said, patience, hard work, logic, curiosity to learn. Someone said, being able to use Google, <laughs> which I thought was probably the best answer out of all of them. Uh, and someone said, domain knowledge. And I said, you know, I, I sort of sat down and thought about this for a few minutes and, and kind of thought about the steps that you might go through to build up a, a, a basic skill set. And I said, first learn Python, then learn SQL, then learn R. Then you need to learn about the ins and outs of data uh, and data quality control and cleaning. You need to study machine learning to be able to do prediction. You need to study statistical inference so that you understand how to, how to ask and answer a question using st parametric statistical methods. Study a, an application domain and then get real data and practice with practical questions and practice, practice, practice. Um, so happy to say my answer got over 50 likes um, and was the most popular in this thread. Um, but I thought it was interesting to see the diversity of responses and, and really everybody had a different response to this question. There's, there's no, clearly no one path to becoming a data scientist, um, but something that lots and lots of people are interested in. So I've, I've seen another post like this, and along with other posts asking about what data science is or how it's different from being a data analyst or a statistician. I've also seen posts about whether it's better to become a software engineer or a data scientist. 
So these are, you know, young people searching for the right career path. Um, some even expressed concern that data science was a fad and they didn't want to get trapped into a dying profession. Maybe it's, you know, maybe it's seen its better days already. And, you know, maybe being a software engineer is a safer bet. So anyway, I, I thought it was a, it was an interesting question. And, you know, for me personally, I wouldn't hire a data scientist on staff without a master's degree. And maybe academic work is different than industrial work, but I think graduate training is necessary to, you know, really have an in-depth knowledge and understanding of key disciplines in areas such as machine learning and AI, and of course, the ability, the ability to code and reason. So you're not ever going to find all the skills mentioned above in one person. You know, these people just don't exist. Some are better at coding, some are better at databases, some are better at statistical analysis and machine learning. Some might be better at high-performance computing and cloud computing. So, you know, good data science comes from, I think, a team with complementary expertise. So what do you think about this, Marilyn? Yeah, I want to, well, first, I love the answer willpower. That I think that was my favorite answer out of the thread. <laughs> um, but no, I want to expand a little bit more on your last point. I think it's exactly right. Good data science comes from a multidisciplinary team. I don't think that there are people who have all of these skills. And, and even individuals who label themselves as a data scientist, you know, when you look at their resume or their CV, you really have to look through and, and figure out what kind of data scientist are you? I mean, I've definitely gotten resumes and they say, I'm a data scientist. I'm like, okay, but, but what does that mean? It, it it's not one thing. It's not like uh, I feel like someone who is a you know a C C plus plus programmer. Like I know what that means. They might also have other skills, but if they sell themselves as a programmer, you know, in this language, that means something. Data scientists mean. I mean, all of those answers were were true. It's a lot of skills. So I think that that diversity of skills and expertise is really what is needed. And so as an individual, you have to figure out which, which of those aspects you want to make your focus, but then plan that you're going to need to work with a team who has the other skills. Um, being able to innovate and be creative, it just requires that diversity. You need all of those kind of data and programming and statistical skills. You also need the domain skills. So whatever the problem area is, you know, you have to have some of that content expertise. And as an individual, you can't possibly have all of that. So I certainly, when I'm recruiting into my teams, try to bring multiple types of expertise, certainly across the team, but even within a project, you know, I'll try to get um, one of my data analysts who are more kind of biostatistically trained, and then one of my computer programmers to be involved. And I would say some of my team members are probably starting to feel more like a data scientist than, you know, they came in as a data analyst or a software developer, but because they're working on projects with people from the other disciplines, you know, I would bet some of them are starting to feel like, you know, I have a lot of these skills. I probably could label myself a data scientist. And I think they're right. Even though they weren't formally trained in the discipline They've almost, by nature of the way that they're working on their the research that they're doing, they're like getting that 
kind of graduate level training without the coursework part. They're really getting the hands-on um, aspect of that training. So um, yeah, for those young people out there, I think it's figuring out which of those skills you're interested in and, and really trying to home in on those, but being ready to know which areas you're not an expert in and know that you have to collaborate with a team because it it's there just isn't enough time to study all of those disciplines in enough detail. Yeah, and for, for the young people out there thinking about a career in data science, I, I don't think data science is going anywhere. I think this is an area that's just gonna continue to boom into the future. I just don't see any slowdown data just keeps getting bigger and more complex. And uh, I think the demand for data science is going to continue to be very, very strong in the coming years. Um, yeah. And uh, it's, it's an exciting discipline and, you know, it, it's, I think your job is to get the basic skills down um, and be an expert in, in a couple areas. Um, and then the rest of it's on the job learning. You're going to, you're going to learn a lot by doing and pick up new skills along the way and become a better and better data scientist. And so get, get those basic skills, get that education uh, and then get started working on real problems and your, your, you know, your, your skill set and your expertise will evolve from there. It is now time for some news items. The following are a few things that caught our eye. Marilyn will get us started with the first item. Thanks, Jason. Okay, first, a new paper in Diabetes Care by Lee et al. reports on a head-to-head -head comparison and validation of seven different commercial artificial intelligence screening systems for screening for diabetic retinopathy. The authors applied the AIs to 311,000 retinal images from more than 23,000 U.S. veterans. The authors conclude that the diabetic retinopathy screening algorithms showed significant performance differences. These results argue for rigorous testing of all such algorithms on real-world data before clinical implementation. It is surprising how much variability there is in the performance of these different methods. A good example of how far we have to go with AI and medicine. We have a link to the paper in the show notes, and this reminds me a lot of what we talked about back in episode zero and episode one about AI for medicine and in, in imaging. So yeah, it's a great paper. Yeah, we, we might want to dive into this one uh, more deeply uh, next time, maybe in a journal club segment. I, I thought this was a really interesting paper. And you know, I've, I've always sort of thought of, you know, screening for diabetic retinopathy as the prototypical use case for AI, you know, where, where it works. And so this paper throws a little bit of cold water on that. Yep. Okay. So as some of you know, I, I love to tinker with old computers from the 1970s and 1980s. Um, I've got a pretty big collection of Ataris along with a few Apple IIs and Radio Shack TRS-80 color computers and Commodore VIC-20, Commodore 64, et cetera. And, and I was really ex excited to see a piece in the New York Times this month on the rising popularity of, of retro computing as a hobby. But unfortunately, the, the, the rise of this hobby is driving up prices on eBay and elsewhere. So it's getting harder and harder to both find and afford to pay for all of this old equipment. It's kind of an interesting phenomenon. Anyway, it's good news uh, for those selling old computers, but bad news for collectors and those just getting into the hobby. And just as a side note, I, I got a lot of my hardware 
20 years ago uh, when I was living in Nashville and I was going to flea markets and thrift stores in Nashville, buying this stuff up for dirt cheap and uh, the appreciation, you know, I'll give you an example. I used to buy old computers like this for $10, $20 a pop back, back 20 years ago. And now these same computers are selling for two, three, four or $500 each. Uh, so it's a, turns out it was a pretty good investment. So while we're on the topic of old computers, uh, some of you might have heard of an early programming language called Prolog, which was released in 1972 and developed uh, over the years. Um, it's a programming language that's heavily based on uh, logic expressed in terms of relations and facts and rules. And because of this basis in logic, it was widely used in the AI space. And coincidentally, I ran across a blog post by David Strohmeyer from January 5th. And the title of his post was Why Learn Prologue in 2021? Here's this old computer language that was used in the early days of AI. I, I, I don't know anybody that uses it today. And he lays out in his blog post three arguments for why you might want to take the time to learn this obscure language. And so here, here, here are his three, three points. First is just the sheer intellectual beauty of the language. Um, the first order logic used by Prolog is the same that's used, uh, that's taught to um, philosophy students. Um, so there, there is sort of an inherent beauty to the language from a logic point of view. Uh, number two, um, uh, it's a different perspective on foundations in computer science, such as recursion and list manipulations. And, you know, thinking differently about uh, about things we take for granted or do every day can can stretch your brain. Uh, and third was unfulfilled potential. David argues that this kind of programming will make a comeback and that you could be ahead of the hype curve by learning it now and will help you stand out. So for those of you uh, looking at becoming data scientists, uh, maybe this is a language that could set you up for your next big job. Uh, the next item, a recent piece in Wired reported on the death of Adobe Flash. As of December 31st, 2020, Adobe will no longer support or update Flash and is recommending that everyone uninstall it. I know that that's true because all of my computers had these big red warning boxes, <laughs> uninstall now. For those not familiar with Flash, it was developed in the late 1990s and very popular in the early 2000s, allowing animation, sound, and gaming in the web browser. Its death started back in 2010 when Steve Jobs said he was not going to allow it on Apple devices due to security risks. Rest in peace, Flash. Flash was a lot of fun back in the you know 1990s when when the internet was booming and you know yeah all all I remember all the the fun flash games and animation that we used to circulate by by email yeah absolutely okay next up um, just a quick note the University of Virginia is looking for an associate dean for academic and faculty affairs in its new school of data science uh, seems like a great opportunity for those of you interested in that kind of thing and we have a link in the show notes um, if you're interested the next item should all children be taught to code? This question was raised in a New York Times opinion piece, noting that parents in India are being pressured to start their kids coding at age four or five. Wow. That's really young. Jason, what do you think? 
I don't know. I read this piece and, and uh, I, I guess I'm kind of conflicted about it. On one hand, I think for kids who, who have that innate ability uh, to code um, and ultimately might be interested in that kind of thing, it seems like a great idea. But I'm not sure I like the idea of forcing kids to code, especially those kids whose you know brains are just not wired that way, right? That are more on the creative side of the spectrum or the artistic side of the spectrum. So I don't know. I, it'll be an interesting experiment to see how it goes. Um, I, uh, I'm, I guess I'm leaning a little bit more toward the skeptical side. I don't know. What about you, Marilyn? Yeah. No, I agree. I'm a little skeptical. I mean, I, as you know, I have a 15-year-old who is starting to get interested in coding and computers. And we've just started talking about, you know, online courses and YouTube courses and Coursera where he could start to tinker because it's not really something that he has had in school yet other than like really, really simple things. I, I would say my kids, they're very technologically savvy. I mean, they've been able to do things on iPads and iPhones you know, since they were two, maybe even 18 months old. So the technology piece, I feel like four and five-year-olds certainly have, but the the programming and the logic, like, I mean, even between my two kids, I think my 15-year-old is likely to be into programming and my daughter is much more, so she's 12, but she's much more artistic and creative. She wants to write stories. I think if I were trying to force her to write code, even at age 12, much less at age five, it would have been a nightmare and would be a nightmare. So I, I, I'm skeptical. Yeah, I, you know, this, uh, this, this experiment is taking place in India, you know, which is uh, a developing country. And I, I, I would imagine if you were born into po poverty in a developing country that learning to code could be your ticket out of poverty. So I don't, you know, I could, maybe it's a good idea for, um, you know, for those kinds of situations. Yeah, I guess we'll keep an eye on it. And we do have a link if you're interested in the show notes to the article in New York Times. Okay, next up, um, I ran across a, a very interesting blog post by Dr. Daniel Lemire, uh, a computer science professor at the University of Quebec. And he writes that peer-reviewed papers are getting increasingly boring as the number of publications grows exponentially. And he cites a National Bureau of Economic Research, Research report from last year that states, and I quote, this emphasis on citations and the measurement of scientific productivity shifted scientific rewards and behavior on the margin toward incremental science and away from exploratory projects that are more likely to fail but which are the fuel for future breakthroughs. As attention given to new ideas decreased, science stagnated. Lemire ar argues that uh, the question is not how many papers you have published or the number of citations, but rather what are you working on and why is it important? He points out that the modern structure of a research paper and the peer review process does not exist in the, did not exist in the early days of scientists like Einstein. He says that research reports used to be a lot more like blogging, more informal, where you could write about ideas and share them. So he makes uh, the following two recommendations. First, he says uh, we should seek out objective feedback about our work from people who are frank and honest um, and do not mislead citations or peer review as a measure of the quality of a paper. And second, when evaluating someone's research, try to approach it from a distance and do not count inputs and outputs as, as a quality metric. 
the example he gives is that no one would describe Stephen King as a great writer just because of the number of books he wrote. <clears throat> Rather, it's the actual, uh, you know, the actual impact of the work. So anyway, I, I think it's something to think about. It's 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 an interesting blog post to read, and I, I think there's some truth to it. Um, I I I think we're standardizing our way into this kind of re rewarding for incremental science, and and that is a problem. I think I think we need more opportunities to to publish creative approaches, new approaches. You know, the kind of data science approaches we were talking about earlier that might break some of the disciplinary rules because that's where the next big discoveries might come from. I mean, I don't know, maybe maybe that's the the role of blogs and archive and, you know, preprint servers and um, <clears throat> social media as, to, as, as a way to get those ideas out there instead of the formal peer review process. Yeah, it's interesting. I, hmm. I need to think more about what I think the future would be. I mean, as I, I do agree that the number of papers has been growing exponentially, and I know I have a really hard time keeping up with the literature anymore. And, and I do feel like, I mean, I'm as much to blame for that because I encourage my students to publish a lot. And it is frustrating. Sometimes the things you have to do to make something publishable that isn't the most creative or the most interesting. I mean, I certainly have really tried to go the route of, writing more kind of lessons learned papers or perspectives papers that maybe don't get into the highest tier journal, but allow you the opportunity to put your creative ideas out into the world so that people can read them and critique them and then build upon them. Cause that is how science science happens. And I guess it's an interesting thought to maybe pivot some of that to blogs and social media instead of publications that would decrease the number of papers to write and like publish. But currently blogs and social media don't give us any academic currency. The currency, the bean counting is in publications. And so until we change the metrics of success to count the blog posts and to count the kind of presence and influence on social media, I'm not sure we're gonna see a decrease in the number of publications. I don't know, go ahead, Jason. Yeah, you know, uh, early in my career, I used to write a lot of book chapters, and people would always say, "Why do you waste your time writing those book chapters?" Um, you know, and there's a lot of been a lot of criticism, especially more recently, about publishing books and book chapters. But I, I always said, "Look, this is this is an avenue where I can I can say things and do things that I can't in a peer-reviewed journal." Because you know you ha you have a lot more freedom in a book chapter to present preliminary results or present crazy ideas or things you tried that might not survive peer review, and it's a way of getting those ideas out there so that others can benefit from them with without the you know the the formality that comes with peer review and and you know the so it's it's you know it's 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 a it's a place book chapters are a place and I would say blogs as well are a place where you can kind of spread your wings and try crazy ideas and get away with things and uh, that you can't in peer review. All right, the next item, oh, this one makes me sick. Uh, as, a, as a an editor of a journal, uh, Jason and I heard about a journal scam where all editors in chief, we all have to be aware that this happened. 
Um, the website Retraction Watch reported on an organized rogue editor network that was preying on the Journal of Nanoparticle Research. The editors of the journal were approached about doing a special issue and agreed because the topic was interesting and the requ request seemed credible, which means it came from university email addresses, from names of people who work at a university. The special issue received 80 submissions. The journal editors started reading some of the papers and discovered that they were of low quality. But by that time it was too late and 19 papers had already been accepted. They started to investigate and discovered that the researchers who supposedly organized the special issue had no knowledge of it. It turns out that the, fake, that the email addresses were faked and the journal was the victim of a publishing scam whereby fake special issue editors, pretending they were someone else, would accept their friends' low quality papers. Uh, there are some other examples of journals who have fallen for similar scams. We have a link to this article from Retraction Watch in the show notes, but I can say as a journal editor, I mean, we get requests for special issues all the time and it would, it would be so easy for something like this to happen. I mean, I'm glad that this information is out there so that we can be much more diligent in, um, you know, really going through the papers, but it, I don't know, it's scary to think that somebody could kind of, could actually run some kind of rogue publication scam like this. It, it was shocking to me. Yeah, I was, I was surprised to learn about this as well. It, it is very troubling and we'll, we'll certainly pay close attention when we get these requests um, in our own journal. But I think it relates to what we just talked about, the incremental science and the, the bean counting that's happening in academia. You know, people are under a lot of pressure to publish papers and, and get rewarded for doing so. Um, so I, th I, think, I think these are all kind of intertwined into the same problem that we have in academia. What baffles me is, is you know, if you're going to be unethical, if you're going to, if you're going to do, I don't know if this falls into the category of criminal things, but if you're inclined to do criminal things to get ahead in academia, just be a criminal. You know, why seems like you could make a lot more money in other sectors than in academia. You know, I'm just thinking of all the predatory journals, for example. Yeah, that's a really great point. Like what, what actually was the end game here? So that you got more publications, which means you could get promoted in an academic track, which certainly is prestigious. And don't get me wrong, I love being in academia, but if you're that nefarious and sneaky, you could apply those skills to other areas <laughs> that would make you a lot more money than academia. We don't come to academia to make money. We come academia to educate you know, the future. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. Okay, next up, um, just briefly, I ran across a webpage uh, hosted by Jeff Wong, uh, listing the best paper awards in computer science conferences since 1996. I thought this was a great resource and a great way to find out what the hot new uh, topics or work is in, in computer science. Uh, and there are a number of different conferences uh, represented, including NeurIPS, which is the big, uh, one of the big AI conferences. So we have a link here in the show notes. Um, it's jeffwong.com slash best paper awards and uh, check it out. And uh, I'm sure you'll find some things worth reading. Great. And our last item, this is on a lighter note. We already talked about bean counting in academia, but now we're going to talk about bean dad. 
Um, if you love social media memes, then you probably have already heard about Bean Dad from Twitter. This all played out in a series of tweets from a dad about his hungry nine-year-old daughter. His daughter indicated she was hungry, and he told her to make beans. She asked how, and he told her to get a can of beans, open it, put it in a pot, and heat it up. She brought a can of beans, but didn't know how to open it. In a teaching moment, he told her she had to figure it out herself. She, of course, struggled, and six hours later, finally got it to open. People responded with shock on Twitter, with comments ranging from, just open the can and give your child beans, you psycho, to <laughs> feed her, then teach, to you are an a-hole. <laughs> and Bean Dad was born as the first big Twitter meme of 2021. Um, some of the other things that I saw in response to Bean Dad were, this is exactly what grad school is like. <laughs> Um, I just, I laughed. I thought it was so funny. And it, it was very funny to watch some people, you know, who are parents responding in the like, why would you not feed your kid to other people being like, you know, well done, dad, we got to teach these kids to fish. It was just very funny. Um, the other thing that I wanted to comment on about this one, there were other people who were saying, you know, this is a great reminder that our goal of the year should be to not be the tweep of the day. You do not want to be <laughs> the person that everyone is talking about on Twitter because usually it is not a good thing. So it was a great, great little lighthearted uh, event on Twitter. Um, and there's an article on Mashable about it. Yeah, I wish I wish the only things we had to talk about in early 2021 was being dead, to be honest. <laughs> right. <laughs> Um, yeah, this, this was a, this was a great meme. I really enjoyed this one. And, and, you know, it just, you know, Twitter's this place where a lot of people, and I remember when I first got on Twitter many years ago, I think it was 2007 or eight when I first got on Twitter. And, and I remember at the time Twitter was sold as this place where you just talk about what you're doing in 140 characters, you know, I'm going to the grocery store, I'm on my bike, I'm, at work, you know, eating a bowl of soup. And, and that was the kind of stuff you pushed out to Twitter. And that's exactly what this guy was doing, right? He was just sitting at home on his computer and he, and he was just sort of matter-of-factly telling the world what he and his daughter were doing. And it was just so innocent. And, and the Twitter sphere, you know, just blew it up into this enormous thing. It's just hilarious. Yep. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. If you didn't see it, I highly recommend that you look it up. It's just, it's very entertaining. Listener feedback is very important to us. We would very much like to hear your questions, ideas for topics, and thoughts about how we can do a better job. You can always reach us by sending email to feedback at bmipodcast.org. As mentioned earlier, you can also find us on Twitter and Facebook. We are introducing a new segment in this episode on the history of biomedical informatics. We thought this was important for the younger members of our community to learn about influential people in the field, key developments in technology and software, and where some of the disciplines we take for granted today came from. We are pleased to have Dr. John Holmes from here at Penn Medicine to provide the inaugural segment on MUPS. 
Hello, I'm John Holmes, Professor of Medical Informatics and Epidemiology and Associate Director of the Penn Institute for Biomedical Informatics for Medical Informatics. I've been at Penn since graduating from here in 1976, except for a five-year stint as a blood bank and hematology lab tech at Pennsylvania Hospital. Having lived through over four decades of biomedical computing history, I am very pleased to dig back a bit into the past and talk with you about MUMPS, a truly seminal development in programming and database implementation. Ever since my undergrad years at Penn, I've been around computers in some way starting with my senior thesis work in sociology using punch cards on an IBM 360 mainframe. Subsequently, I've had a chance to work with the laboratory reporting system, one of the earliest, and supported the computing needs of a growing epidemiology research group at Penn, earning a master's in information systems and a PhD in information science along the way. Informed by my lengthy experience in epidemiology and information systems, I wrote my dissertation on evolution-assisted dis discovery of sentinel features in epidemiologic surveillance. And I continue to work at the intersection of epidemiology, informatics, and machine learning with a special interest in novel approaches to epidemiologic modeling. So let's talk a little bit about mumps. What is it? Well, it's actually Massachusetts General Hospital Utility Multi-Programming System. That's a mouthful, much easier to say mumps. Um, and actually, sometimes it's referred to M. It's actually a database language, but it can be used as a programming language as well. Initially, it was an interpreted language, uh, but now it is available in a compiled version. And it's a thin system, meaning that it could run in very limited memory and processing environments, which is a good thing because when it was first developed, there was very little memory and processing capability to be had. The language itself is very terse, with commands often abbreviated to one to three characters, and it can run multiple jobs at once, which was really quite something when you think about this. When MUMPS goes back to the late 60s, uh, it, when it was first developed, um, and we weren't thinking too much about being able to support multiple users in those days. Although it's not really a database management system, one can create databases in MUMPS. So a little bit of early history. It was originally developed in 1967-68 in Octo Barnett's laboratory at Massachusetts General Hospital by Robert Greenis, Neil Papalardo, and Kurt Marble. Um, it was, as I mentioned, it was an interpreted language, not compiled, so large binary modules weren't needed. A good thing because, again, memory was very limited in those days. It was originally written for a DEC PDP-7 mini computer, and remember, in those days there was very little software and databases especially were particularly rare. They used a hierarchical data model, which is like a tree-like structure because it mimicked the structure of the medical record. Trees were implemented as what we call global arrays where paths through the arrays simulated paths through trees, very much like you would navigate an electronic or a, a paper medical record, which is the predominant form in those days. Otto Barnett's lab implemented this on a PDP-9 lab information and admission system shortly after they invented this uh, system. Um, they put this into place at Mass General using a hierarchical database architecture. And again, remember that operating systems on mini computers at the time didn't support multitasking, even though MUMPS did. It was way ahead of its time. So jumping ahead a bit to 1971, MUMPS was then adapted to a DEC PDP-15, and funded for research and deployment purposes. 
It subsequently found its way to ports on a variety of many computer platforms, such as the PDP-8, PDP-11, and the Arctronics PC-12. A really truly seminal event happened in the mid 70s with the development of the first electronic medical record called COSTAR. Again, another acronym, it stands for Computer Stored Ambulatory Record that allowed uh, people to use the system for electronic medical documentation and billing functions. Now, jumping ahead a little bit to the 80s, um, there was increasing vendor interest in MUMPS that came from the Digital Equipment Corporation, or DEC, um, Data General, Micronetics, and Datatree. And Datatree was the first, actually, to implement MUMPS on an Intel processor. And it was around this time that there was a development of an ANSI standard for MUMPS. So MUMPS was becoming a standard language and a standard database specification in medicine. Then, believe it or not, there was actually an open version of MUMPS that was developed for Windows NT by InterSystems, and that was deployed in the late 80s. In the late 80s also, I had the opportunity to work with Dr. Robert Wigton, who was on sabbatical at Penn from the University of Nebraska. He's truly one of the pioneers in, in informatics, and especially that branch of informatics that deals with medical and clinical decision-making. But he was also an expert in CoStar, having published a number of papers on this, and during that time, um, in working with him, I learned about MUMPS and I programmed in it on the medical school computer facilities DEC-10, which was our primary server for researchers at Penn. And back then, there was actually an active MUMPS users group at the annual symposium on computer applications and medical care, otherwise known as SCAMSI, which is the predecessor of the AMIA annual symposium. Now, Nowadays, um, it's actually used in many electronic medical record systems. Uh, until recently, it was the foundation of VISTA, otherwise known as the Veterans Health Information Systems and Technology Architecture, long lauded by the informatics community as one of the best electronic medical record systems out there. Uh, it, it was a collection or is a collection of dozens of subsystems that support the largest EMR in the US. But other systems also are based on MUMS. Um, so Allscripts, Epic, uh, GE, uh, Quest Diagnostics, and Meditech all use MUMPS. So why is MUMPS still around? People have to wonder this because it has some pretty humble beginnings. It's this very small, very thin um, language. But it's not just a language because it also supports this hierarchical database architecture. And that makes the database easy to implement comparatively, comparative rather to a um, a database architecture like a relational or a graphical database. It also supports uh, a querying in such a way that is much closer to the way we think about querying a database as humans. Um, it's also built for very complex string operations so that it can be actually used for natural language, but also for, the, for uh, understanding complicated queries. And most importantly, it can run on a variety of platforms, including, and this is really exciting, you could put this on an iPhone, um, it runs in iOS, and it runs in Android as well. It's highly scalable. Uh, so as you can tell from some of the other vendors that are using MUMPS, uh, these are electronic medical record systems, which are huge and are implemented in very, very large um, healthcare organizations. And yet MUMPS is still there uh, working in the, uh, in the background. Not only that, but MUMPS is actually ACID compliant. 
which and, and acid stands for atomicity, consistency, isolation, and durability, which are four metrics that are used to determine whether a database, especially a transactional one, like an electronic medical record, provides accurate and timely um, results and can enforce data validity. Compliance with this standard indicates the ability of the system to stand up to an intense transactional environment. So thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this little walk down a very important memory lane in the history of biomedical informatics. And to learn more about mumps, you might check out some of the, uh, there's a Wikipedia page, there are a number of documents about mumps and certainly it's very well represented in the biomedical literature. Thank you again. Now on to our software segment. Today we will introduce Plot Neural Net. Marilyn will give us a brief overview. Thanks, Jason. Plot Neural Net is an open source resource on GitHub with LaTeX code for drawing deep learning neural networks for reports and presentations. This looks to be incredibly useful for those of you using LaTeX. The neural network images are stunning. Be sure to check it out. We will have links in the show notes. And yeah, these images are just gorgeous. Yeah, I agree. This is an amazing resource for those of you that use LaTeX. Um, you know, I, I, I learned LaTeX in graduate school and was, was actually forced to use it for some of my courses. To do All our homeworks had to be done in LaTeX. I think it was a way for us to learn it. And um, I, you know, as a PI, I don't, I don't use LaTeX much myself. Um, I'm, you know, mostly use Word for ease of use, but a number of people in my lab use LaTeX, of course. And and actually, I just did a grant application. I, a collaborator of mine uses um, uses Overleaf um, for everything she does. And so I wrote my first grant using LaTeX and Overleaf. And boy, this, uh, this library would uh, just be phenomenal for you know, drawing neural networks and convolutional neural networks. And they're beautiful images. So be sure and check it out. Now on to our open data segment. Today we will introduce Dataset. Marilyn will give a brief overview. Thanks, Jason. Dataset is a tool for exploring and publishing data. It helps people take data of any size or shape, analyze and explore it, and publish it as interactive, an interactive website and accompanying API. Dataset is aimed at data journalists, museum curators, archivists, local governments, and anyone else who has data that they wish to share with the world. It is part of a wider ecosystem of tools and plugins dedicated to making working with structured data as productive as possible. They offer tools for exploratory data analysis, allowing you to import data from CSVs and JSON files, as well as database connections. It will automatically show patterns in data and allows you to share findings with others. It offers instant data publishing with hosting provided by Google and others. It also offers rapid prototyping, allow you, allowing you to spin up a JSON API in minutes. The URL is dataset.io, and I should spell that. It's d-a-t-a-s-e-t-t-e.io. I think we're gonna see more of these web-based resources over the coming years as data takes center stage. Jason, do you wanna add anything? 
Yeah, this is a this is a really interesting space, and I'm I'm really happy to see these kind of tools pop up because they do make data sharing easy and and data exploration easy, and I think we're going to see more and more of this, um, you know, in the coming years. My name is Chuck Friedman, and I'm the chair of the Department of Learning Health Sciences at the University of Michigan. You're listening to the Biomedical Informatics Roundtable podcast with Jason and Marilyn. Now on to our Biomedical Informatics Conferences update. First, I would love to celebrate that PSB, the Pacific Symposium on Biocomputing, actually happened. It was virtual this year because of the COVID-19 pandemic, but we had a great conference virtually it was three days of talks and workshops and poster sessions. It was really just great. So thank you to everyone who attended. And we're already in the works for planning PSB 2022. The goal is to have PSB in person back on the Big Island of Hawaii the first week of January 2022. New papers will be due at the end of July. Currently, we have the call for session and workshop proposals live on the website. These proposals are due on February 15th, 2021. If you're not familiar with PSB, we run this meeting completely based on what the community submits as session and workshop proposals. And so the topics for next year have not at all been decided. It's very much based on what the community submits. So if you have ideas and you're hoping to get to the big island of Hawaii to talk about biomedical informatics and bioinformatics next year, submit a session proposal. Yeah, I, I really like how, how you guys um, uh, accept uh, session and workshop proposals from the community. It really helps PSB stay on the cutting edge. Yeah, that's the goal. All right, the next one is the AMIA Virtual Informatics Summit. It will be held online March 22nd to the 25th of 2021 with a focus on translational bioinformatics, clinical research informatics, implementation informatics, and data science. So if you haven't yet registered, you should sign up for that conference. Uh, the AMIA Virtual Clinical Informatics Conference will also be held online. It'll be May 18th to the 20th of this year with a focus on value-based care, informatics response to COVID-19, and EDI, equity, diversity, and inclusion. Uh, we'll have the URLs to these in the show notes. And then lastly from my list is AMIA 2021 Annual Symposium. It will be held in San Diego, hopefully, October 30th to November 3rd. The plan right now is that that meeting will be in person. And boy, I love San Diego. I hope it's in person. The paper deadlines should be announced for that very soon. Okay. Um we uh, successfully held our uh, symposium on artificial intelligence for learning health systems in October of last year. We considered it a pre-symposium since it was online and had a, had a great a great online event with hundreds of participants. Uh, this is a a new conference um, that will be held uh, hopefully on site in Bermuda uh, in October of of 2021. 
And we're uh, currently uh, in the planning process now, picking keynote speakers and deciding on the, the agenda. So I'll um, have, have more updates uh, in the coming episodes. So stay tuned for more, more details about that. But um, I, I think this is a, a really, really nice addition uh, to, to the AI and medicine, AI and learning health system uh, uh, conference selection. Uh, next, I wanted to mention, I think this is a conference we have not mentioned on the podcast before, so I wanted to be sure and get it out there. Um, this is a conference I've never been to before. It's called the International Conference on Artificial Intelligence in Medicine, or AIME. They pronounce it AIME. Uh, this is the 19th uh, International Conference, the 19th AIME, and it will be held online June 16th through 19th. The paper deadline is probably too late uh, now by the time the podcast gets uh, comes out, but it's uh, February 1st, uh, but something to keep your mind on next year. And we'll have a, a link in the show notes to this conference. Um, I know people that are involved in both organizing and running this conference, and uh, I hear great things about it. So I hope to go sometime. Um, and lastly, uh, this is another conference I don't think we've mentioned before on the podcast, but um, one I've participated in a few times. Um, this is the um, ACM Conference on Bioinformatics, Computational Biology, and Health Informatics. So this is the premier bioinformatics conference for the Association of Computing Machinery, which, uh, if you don't know, is the main computer science, the biggest computer science society. So they're having their 12th conference uh, this year. It'll be held virtually on August 1st through 4th, and papers are due on April 1st. So there's still time to get something in. And um, this one's on my radar because I got invited to give the keynote lecture this year for this conference. So I'll be giving the keynote and co-chairing uh, a workshop. So we'll have more details about this later as well. It is now time for our segment on advice and topics of interest for trainees and junior faculty. Today, our topic of discussion is tips for science networking to be presented by Jason. Okay, so this, um, I was asked by some of our junior faculty here at Penn Medicine to uh, meet with them and give them some tips about science networking. So I turned it into a talk and came up with 10 uh, tips, uh, which I'll share with you today. Um, but first, let me, let me just go over uh, a couple of reasons why you might want to spend time networking when you could be writing grants and writing papers and doing research. Um, first of all, um, uh, networking provides collaborative opportunities. Every time you meet somebody with similar interests, that's a collaborative opportunity. It allows you to make friends. Um, some of my best friends uh, are people I've met in academia over the years. Uh, it allows you to communicate your research. <clears throat> You're telling other people about your research, either in one-on-one, -on -one, in small groups, or at conferences. It allows you to identify postdoc candidates and even faculty candidates if you're involved in a, a faculty search. Um, you know, telling people, other people about your research can have the added benefit of educating potential reviewers, people that might get asked to review your papers or serve on a review panel and review your grants. And so getting out there and meeting people and telling them about the exciting things you're doing helps, helps them understand you and what you're doing if they, if they do happen to review your work. Of course, it helps build a national or international reputation, which is important for promotion. 
And it's, of course, it's good for promotion. Um, you know, one of the big parts of promotion is getting letters from leaders or scholars in the field to comment about your work and its impact. And so the more people you meet and talk about your work, the better position they're going to be to comment on it and, and to know you and know your work for the letters that they write. And also it can be, it can be a lot of fun. So, okay. So those are the reasons why you should spend time networking. So now, now on to my 10 tips. So the first is to maximize uh, contact at conferences. So take advantage. And, you know, this is, you know, I'm thinking more about in-person conferences than virtual conferences. Virtual conferences are a little more challenging, but let's assume you're going to a, a, a physical in-person conference. Uh, if you give a talk, uh, don't disappear after the talk, hang around the podium, hang around the stage. Uh, and often people you know, who are really interested in meeting you or really interested in your work or have additional questions will come up and talk to you afterwards. And that can be a, a great way to meet people. Um, go to poster sessions. I love poster sessions uh, because it's a great opportunity. It's probably the best opportunity for science networking because uh, people are wandering around, you know, it's very casual. Uh, people love to chit chat at po poster sessions. Um, it's it's really the the main networking event at any conference is the poster session. So don't skip those, thinking they're boring or you know go to those. It's a, it's a great opportunity to meet people. Also serve on committees for conferences. Um, volunteer for for committees because you you get to know people on committees and and meet people and they get to know you. And also conferences have a lot of after hour events, um, you know, get, you know, find, find a way to go to dinner with a group of people or hang out at the bar. If, if you don't mind doing that kind of thing, because uh, a lot of networking happens after hours at conferences and, and it's a great way to, to really get to know people. Okay. Number two, maximize invited talks. Um, and again, I'm thinking of, you know, going to universities, going to other places to give, give talks in person, um, and, and really take, you know, take, take the meetings that they schedule with other people seriously and, and, uh, you know, do, do a little bit of homework and find out something about them. And, and if, if you're meeting with people that have, have common interests, uh, really, you know, have a, have a, have an in-depth conversation with them and share contact information, Sometimes those lead to collaborative opportunities or ideas. Uh, follow up on those discussions. If you talk about a collaboration, when you get back, send an email and say, hey, I really enjoyed uh, our talk. I'm still excited about this collaboration. How can we move it forward? Um, and invite people you meet uh, that you really connect with back to visit your own institution, to visit your lab and give a talk. And that helps, helps cement those, those connections, those collaborations. Number three um, is, is just simple human psychology. Scientists have egos. We all have egos, some bigger than others, but you can play on that. You know, scientists like to be um, acknowledged. They like to be complimented. Um, you know, if you see a talk you like, go up to the person afterwards and say, hey, I really, I really like that. I really like what you had to say. And, and uh, it's a great way to meet people to, you know, to, to kind of play into their egos a little bit. Uh, number four, follow through on planned collaborations. Um, you know, don't, don't let those collaborative opportunities drop. Um, collaboration takes work. It takes follow through. 
Um, and if you're really excited about a collaboration, it, it might take three or four emails uh, or phone calls or Zoom calls to, to really cement that and get it going. People are busy, so you have to kind of be persistent without you know, being annoying. Number five is train lots of students and postdocs um, because they go out into the community and are linkages in your science network and can introduce new people to you. I've, I've had several really good graduate students and postdocs that have come to me through because they've trained with some of my for, former students. Um, uh, Ruang Li, who uh, just was first author on the Nature Communications paper I mentioned, did his PhD with Marilyn and then came to do a postdoc with me. So uh, training students and postdocs can, can really uh, build your science network. And host visiting faculty and students. I had a visiting professor from Israel that came and stayed with me for a couple of years, and that was just amazing and opened a lot of doors to new collaborations. Uh, number seven is, ha you know, have a great website and do search engine op optimization so that people find your website. Um, and uh, it's a great way to get, get connected. And, and number eight is social media, of course, Twitter and Facebook and uh, other avenues uh, can really can really be meaningful, and I've I've uh, established collaborations with people I've met on social media. Number nine is be nice, uh, be a nice person, and that goes a long way toward establishing a, a strong uh, science network. And number ten is don't build bridges when you leave an institution. Um, Leave gracefully, leave on good terms, uh, you know, don't be mean about it, even if you're unhappy, because, you know, that can be a major disruption to your science network. And you want to you want to keep those good collaborators at your previous institution and, and nurture them even after you leave. So anyway, those are my 10 tips. Uh, Marilyn, what do you think about this? That's a great list. Uh, I, I agree with everything you said it. I will kind of say without it goes without saying that Networking is a key part of being successful in science. And I remember early on being surprised by that because being social is not necessarily, you know, a hallmark trait of scientists. And yet it's it's really an important part of what we have to do is, is communicating with other people. Um, and a lot of our events kind of really put us into these social situations where we have to interact like poster sessions. And there are just, there's a lot of symposia with, you know, happy hours and meals where you just have to sit with other people. And, and it, it really is important to, to branch out and meet new people at these events. Um, a few things that I would add, uh, you were talking about um, through training students and postdocs and then them going out in the world, you get to kind of build that network. But I would also say that when you are talking with colleagues, so some of the different ways you pointed out, meeting new kind of collaborators and colleagues, that's another way to find great students and postdocs. So I've definitely had several come. I met someone at a conference and then their student was there. And so I talked to their student and then they came and did a postdoc with me after I had met their PI at a conference. Um, so I think it goes both ways, both you can get new students as well as when you train students and send them out in the world, um, they can help build that network for you. Um, I think it's important for future job opportunities that, so this isn't a tip to how to network, it's, this goes back to the whys. Job opportunities for your students and postdocs, as well as yourself, 
so many of them come because of the network that you've built. You know, almost all of my students and postdocs have taken the next job based on connections that I have. Now, I don't mean they've been given the job, you know, not appropriately, but rather than just cold call, send out their CV, you know, I'll reach out and say, I have someone interested in coming to that area or to that institution. Do you have any positions? Um, even just yesterday, I got an email from some colleagues at Harvard that they're recruiting either assistant or associate professors. Do I know anyone looking? And of course, I sent it to my network of postdocs and junior faculty that might be interested and sent it out. And so two of them already replied yes, and I will send their CVs. And that's how that, that works. So, you know, I get uh, emails all the time that I pass on to my network. And when I am recruiting, you know, rarely, I think we talked about this a few episodes ago, I don't post an ad for a postdoc. I email my network and say, does anyone have a great student graduating? And so uh, this networking kind of starts when you're a student and goes throughout your career. And it's just such an important piece. You can get so many new opportunities for science and projects. There are a lot of things I work on now that I wouldn't work on, except that I met someone at a meeting and we started collaborating and it turned into really interesting science. Um, the last two things I wanna say, oh, I wanna go back to two points that you made. So the, your number 10, don't burn bridges. I just want to reiterate that point. The world is so, so small. I cannot believe the number of times that I have run into someone from my past that, you know, when I, you know, I was a graduate student at Vanderbilt and there was someone in my classes who, you know, we didn't really talk much in grad school. It, there was never any, we weren't really friends or not friends. We just kind of knew who each other are. We have ended up at the same institution or they have ended up working for a company that my institution is working with on a project. People move around. So you might think you're leaving somebody behind at one institution. And so you're gonna give them a piece of your mind because you're never gonna have to see them again until they show up as the chair at your new institution. So you just, the world is small. I guess it's two points that your last two, be nice and don't burn bridges because there are people who will show back up in your life that you never thought you'd have to interact with again, but the world is just really small, especially, I guess it depends on what scientific niche you're in, but in our kind of biomedical informatics world, I, it's not huge. I run into people all the time that I can't believe they're there now. Oh, I thought you were there. Oh, now you're there. Oh, so you know this other person that I know. So be very aware of how small the world is. And then the last thing, um, on the, the kind of building collaborations, I think is super important, but being mindful of setting boundaries and not setting up too many. So your point about following through on planned collaborations, that's really important, but also that you're getting your own projects done. And if you take on too many collaborations, you both can't get your own work done and you can't get all the projects done for the collaborations. And so it can end up kind of backfiring and being a problem. So you really have to, be mindful of like how many collaborative projects could I take on such that I fulfill them and I'm a great collaborator and that I'm getting my own projects done. But uh, yeah, great topic. Thanks for, for sharing your list. Yeah. I think, I think the important thing to remember is that 
science networking is hard work. You know, it, it takes real commitment. Um, and, uh, but it's, it, it pays off in a huge, huge way if you're persistent and work hard at it. And, uh, I can't tell you how many conferences I've gone to where by the end of the day, I'm just wiped out, you know, by, you know, by six o'clock. And then to, to think about going out to dinner and going to the bar and being social, it's like the last thing I want to do. I just want to go watch TV, catch up on email and go to bed early. And, uh, but you know, a, a lot of times I force myself to go and, and, um, you know, it's hard, but it's, it's important. And, and I think it, you know, there are plenty of times when it's paid off. It is now time to wrap up the discussion for the day. Jason, any closing remarks? Thanks, Marilyn. This has been a, a great, great episode. And, um, uh, you know, one of the, on one of the Facebook pages I mentioned in the discussion, uh, there was a post with an image uh, giving a visual overview of all the different pieces and parts of data science that one could learn. And it had all these arrows, you know, going all over the place, connecting them and, and I think the, the purpose of this figure was, was to try to, you know, sort of paint a picture of all the things you, you might need to learn as a data scientist. And there must have been a hundred different boxes on this image. And, um, you know, my, the first thing, you know, I, I knew it was comprehensive, but the, the first thing I looked for um, was, you know, okay, where, where you know, th there were a bunch of boxes related to machine learning, fitting models, et cetera. And I, I immediately look for interpretation. Where is machine learning model interpretation, which is, you know, pro probably the most important and hardest part of machine learning is, is figuring out what your model means so you can turn it into something useful and learn from it. Wasn't there. And then the other thing that wasn't there was domain-specific knowledge, which is so critical in machine learning. Um, you know, you can't build a good machine learning model without domain-specific knowledge, and you can't interpret a machine learning model without domain specific knowledge. And that wasn't on there either. So I'm a, I'm a firm believer uh, that domain knowledge has to be one of the big pieces of data science. And, um, you know, I, I mentioned that in, in my response of how to become a data scientist, you got to have domain knowledge and domain expertise. If you really want to be a good data science an impactful data scientist, so, um, you know, I think now that we have so many powerful machine learning and data science tools, we need to spend more time figuring out how to incorporate expert knowledge at each step of the data science pipeline. And I think biomedical informaticians are in a really good place to do that, given our knowledge and expertise in things like ontologies and natural language processing. Um, so in other words, I, I think we need more informaticians engaged in machine learning and AI. Um, to really do a good job of developing new methods and applying them to biomedical problems. So this is certainly something I've been thinking a lot about. Marilyn, do you have any closing thoughts? Yeah, as we were talking about networking in the training segment, it, it made me realize, you know, you were talking about the things that we do at in-person events, and it's been a really long time since we've gone to an in-person conference, but soon we're likely gonna get to start to make those decisions again about traveling and, and also just being on campus. I mean, we haven't even been on campus for nine, almost 10 months. So I think it's interesting as you were talking, I was sitting here and thinking about it and, and I wanna spend a little bit more time thinking what does kind of post COVID life 
look like? And and maybe it's not just post-COVID life, but post-COVID vaccine life. So once many of us are vaccinated and it would feel safe to travel and to be in the office again, what is that going to look like? And certainly from the the science networking perspective, it it seems like it would be a really good idea to go back to conferences and be back in the office and back on campus. Um, But I certainly, I want to take the time and I would encourage all of us to take some time and, and really think about and be intentional about the, the decisions that we're about to make, you know, as informaticians, we're really in a unique spot. We have the opportunity to be selective, I think, about what our work schedule and our work environment looks like, because we can work from anywhere, as we've learned throughout this year. As you said earlier, you've had your most productive year ever. Uh, I actually haven't looked. I You inspired me. I want to go back and look and really think through kind of grant submissions, funding, papers, like what did we, you know, in a metrics-driven way accomplish? But I think it would be useful for us to think about, you know, what did work in 2020 in terms of our productivity and our efficiency and how happy everyone is in their jobs. And then what parts of pre-COVID life do we miss? So being in the office or going to conferences and then like, let's craft and design what we want that to look like. We certainly need the scientific networking. I'm, I'm definitely hungry for those social interactions, but I want to be careful not to just get right back on the hamster wheel. I mean, I do feel like we've been given a great opportunity to pause and really think about what we want it to look like. And before we ramp back up, I think we have a chance to design it a little bit. In the past, we didn't really have that. You just were kind of on the wheel and had to keep on the wheel, but now we're all, we were all thrown off the wheel. And before we get back on, figuring out, you know, what are those high yield conferences? Those are the ones that we should go to. And figuring out how to be in the office. I've definitely thought about, you know, I think everyone in my group would like some work from home days. and. I'm, I'm, I would like that as well, but I want to make sure we are all there when it's safe on the same days so that we are interacting and have those collaborative kind of brainstorming, you know, uh, walking for coffee and water cooler conversations. I don't want us to be totally staggered such that we never see each other in person. So I think listening through that networking segment and really thinking about how do you take advantage of networking opportunities once it's safe, but do it in a way that allows you to stay really productive and efficient and happy and balanced in terms of kind of all the things that we need to think about. That is it for today. Thank you for joining us. We will see you next time. That is it for this episode. Thank you very much for tuning in. We hope you will be able to find the time to join us again. Feel free to get in touch with us for feedback or suggestions. You can find our contact info online. It is now officially Miller time here in Philadelphia. 